You're listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast, dedicated to bridging the gap between alternative healthcare and mainstream medicine in utilizing everything good to help you feel great. We're glad you tuned in. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Pound. Dr. Stephen Schimpf is an experienced internist and author who believes the healthcare system can be fixed. In our interview today, we discuss the problem causing rising healthcare costs, what works for developing healthy lives, and advances in medicine, including stem cells, robots in the ER, and even what supplements to take. Stephen has a lot of experience in this field. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. How did you get to the place you're at right now, becoming a medical doctor? Well, well, I guess like for all of us, it's, it's one of those long stories, but um, I, I kind of had an epiphany when I was about a sophomore in, in high school that uh, I wanted to become a physician, and, and it was about how can I help other people primarily, and so that has really been if you will, my purpose in life is to help other people, whether it's been as a uh, individual, you know, one-on-one taking care of a patient, whether it's been as a, uh, a teacher, as a professor in the medical school, and, and then more recently as a, uh, as, 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 a, as, a, as an author of some books, which are really meant for everybody. And I guess I should also add in, I did quite a bit of research along the way too. And so how long have you been a licensed doctor? Well, I graduated 51 years ago, so I guess I got my license about two years after that. So that's going to be about not quite 50 years. Okay, and the reason I bring that up is to give our listeners some perspective. You've seen quite a few changes over the few years, <laughs> last few years you've been in, you've, <laughs> you've been licensed, right? I was going to say a, a lot of those changes have been for the good. Unfortunately, some have not been for the good. But our healthcare delivery system is really, well, let's just call it dysfunctional. Now, if you had to kind of sum up why that is, what would you say the reason? Because you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation, you know, 40 years ago. In fact, a lot of doctors, from what I understand, uh, they didn't have as much integration back then as they do now. Well, that's true. I I think, you know, I say it's dysfunctional. Let me give you two or three examples. I think probably all of your listeners are aware of these. But, you know, it, it takes a long time to get an appointment with the doctor. And then uh, you get there, and you have to wait a long time in the waiting room, and then you just, just you get 10 to 12 minutes with the doctor, and then you're out. And maybe you've been sent off to the specialist or whatever. Um, now, I'm talking about internists here, primary care physicians. Um, why is that? That's because of the reimbursement system um, limits what the doctor can collect. And so in order to cover their overheads, uh, they've got to see more patients per day. And so if they're seeing 24, 30 patients a day, you can do the math, and it's like three patients an hour. And that's okay for a simple problem, I say relatively simple problem. But if it's a person that has three or four chronic diseases on seven or eight prescription medications, they come in with a new problem, you just can't deal with that in 10 to 12 minutes. And that's often the case, particularly with older people. So uh, it's it's a real conundrum. And what happens, of course, is that if the problem is a little bit out of the ordinary and it can't be figured out in 10 to 12 minutes, which is often the case, then the patient gets referred or gets a bunch of a battery of tests. When, you know, another 25 minutes taking a really careful history, then the whole thing would have been, you know, pretty clear. So we have this system that just sort of 
the doctors are running on a treadmill and the patients are being not on a treadmill, but they're, they're being passed from doctor to doctor to specialist to specialist. And it's just not a good system. It's, it's not good medical care. But we do have access to quite a bit new technologies and innovations now. In fact, some of the things we'll be talking about, uh, some new research coming out, and some of the what you call, uh, what is it, megatrends in in medical, uh, including stem cell genomics and even robots in the ER. So I'm 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 really excited to get into that. But all that I'm sure has led to longer lifespan, which again leads to what you've said, some more chronic illness. Is that correct? I think there's an analogy we could use, which might be helpful. When John F. Kennedy said, let's go to the moon in 10 years, he knew from scientists and engineers that, in fact, the uh, the physics of it had been figured out, the engineering of it had been figured out. It just had to be all brought together. But when we say we're going to use stem cells uh, to cure a lot of diseases, which we would really like to do and which probably can do someday, the point of, is that we really don't know the basic science yet. So we need a lot more knowledge about how these stem cells work, how they've come together. And so there's been a lot of enthusiasm about it, and I think rightfully so. But at the same time, uh, we, we just don't know enough yet. Now, I've seen a bunch of clinics that have been popping up treating things like elbow pain, knee pain, um, and these are common complaints in my practice. These are common chronic conditions, people with degenerative uh, diseases in these joints, degenerative joint disease where they don't have any cartilage anymore, with hope that these stem cell clinics can help either with their pain or even, I guess, with the assumption that they'll grow cartilage back. What's your opinion? Well, my opinion is, is that it's too early, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some successes occurring. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that it's all it's a little bunk, uh, for sure. And but again, I come back. I'm, I'm just going to settle back again to say we just have a lot to learn. But I'm sure we're going to learn, and we're going to see huge strides in the next few years. And I think, um, in fact, that just the things like uh, knee problems and hip problems, uh, we're going to ha- we're going to have a solution to. At least in a lot of patients I see, uh, knock off some weight. And your, and your knees will work a lot better. Now, I know that's easier said than done for many people, but um, we're always going to the doctor looking for the fix when there's some things we could do ourselves. So back to the the robots in the OR or ER, um, you know, you've, you've also, I think, seen or had some experience with the new technologies in creating more precise procedures or different procedures. And I've seen this in in radiology even, where the AI essentially can read radiology with less or or catch, detect more problems than a trained radiologist, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But when you think about our reliance uh, on computers doesn't stop at home, but is even kind of making its way into healthcare. No, you're absolutely right. And I think you know, there's just great value there. Um, and I don't want to be a, a negative-sounding person here, but we can't depend upon the computers to do the job for us. We still need that good radiologist who, who has the sense, and they can use the information that comes from the artificial intelligence from the computer and, and put it into a context, um, you know, based on seeing the, the person in front of them and the x-rays at the same time. 
finding that balance is is kind of tricky, but uh, much needed. So let's dive into a little bit how you perceive the solution in this chronic pain problem is and, and what you th- feel the doctor's role is and the, the patient's role is. Well, when you say chronic pain, I think you're, you're referring to something like the, the hip pain, the knee pain, the back pain. Um, and I think that there's, there's so much that the doctor can do, but there's so much that we as individuals can do. And I suppose that that's sort of my, uh, um, I don't know if mantra is the right word to use here, but it's, it's, it's human nature to want to go to the doctor, whether that's an MD, a chiropractor, um, uh, or, or someone who does uh, what I'll call uh, uh, complementary or alternative medicine. We're, we're looking to somebody else to solve our issues for us. And there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> certainly nothing wrong with that. But so often the key thing is what we can help do, do ourselves. And we may need guidance. We may need uh, suggestions, um, and we probably do. You know, I have a posture problem, and, uh, and, I'm, and I'm working on it. I'm doing my Ys and Ts and Ws to try and tighten up my back muscles. And by the way, I am going to go see a chiropractor when I get back from the, our mountain retreat here for a while. Um, and yet, but I know that I'm the one who has to do most of it. He'll give me some, some good advice, but I got to do the work. I, I feel like I've, I've almost been a little bit negative here uh, about, about medical advances. I don't mean to be that. I mean, just I'm thinking back over my own career, the new antibiotics, the new types of surgery, uh, uh, the, 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 the drugs for, for mental illness, uh, drugs to bring down high cholesterol and so on. And they're really quite amazing. You can't, you can't duck that. They are truly amazing, and, uh, and we can all be very excited about that, proud about that, um, and yet I just think it's so important for us to remember that we can't just look to the doctor to fix it for us or a pill to fix it for us. Now, in your experience, what would you say is the biggest hurdle for people to overcome when it comes to preventative medicine or extending the warranty on their life? It's a really good question. The biggest hurdle, I think, is that we don't realize uh, how much how much we can really do, um, and and part of that is uh, the marketing that goes on around us. You know, I was looking at in the grocery store the other day and just looking at uh, um, what what gets sold, and there's a whole aisle of sodas. And then there's another whole aisle of potato chips and fritos and so on. And then there's all the cereals. And I picked up one cereal. I won't give the brand name, but it was it was um, cornflakes. I thought, well, I'm just going to turn around and look at it. Well, cornflakes have sugar add to them. I couldn't believe it, but they do. And so the amount of sugar that's in so many of our different foods is, is just astronomical, and we don't realize it. One can of soda, 12-ounce can of, can of soda, usually has about 37 grams of, of sugar in it. And just to put that in perspective, that's a little bit more than the American Heart Association says each of us should have in a whole day. But it's right there in one can of soda. Um, and then there's all these things that, that we love, you know, pastas and, and cookies and cakes and, and pies. Um, they have sugar in them, but they're also made from white flour. And I think what most people don't realize is that when we eat that flour, uh, the baked goods, um, we digest it to sugar. 
and it goes right in. Um, so, so much of our food is is sugar based, if you will, um, as opposed to th- those foods that um, you know are really healthy for us. And listen, by the way, I admit that I love potato chips and I like French fries, and I like a cookie once in a while, uh, but to the large part, they're not good for us. So I, that that brings up a good point. I'm glad you opened that door because as a researcher, I'm sure okay. you you kind of know um, what what we should and shouldn't do. So what, what's your daily routine look like? Uh, start off with uh, what I hope is a healthy breakfast for us. My wife and I, it's usually oatmeal to which we add some walnuts and some seeds, and usually sunflower seeds or, or pumpkin seeds, a um, little bit of milk. Um, a little bit of cinnamon for some extra flavor, and uh, and and usually um, some maybe some some raisins, and um, but before that some fruit, whatever's whatever local. Uh, we like to get you know fresh fruit. Um, nowadays you can get fruit all all year long from wherever, but we like to get our fruit you know whatever is kind of local now. Um, so. This time of year, you know, there's a lot of berries around and so on. So that that's that, that's our start there. So that's breakfast, and then um, I've mentioned that we're staying at a cabin out in the out in the mountains of West Virginia. So once we're done with breakfast and read the newspaper, we like to get up and get out. And I won't call it a hike; I'll call it a walk. But uh, when we were younger, I might have called it a hike because we were going up big mountains and so on. Now we don't quite do that. I'm 76 now, and I'm, I'm in good shape, but I don't do just what I used to do. But we get out, we spend the day, and we take a, uh, a you know, our, our lunch in a, in a, in a, in our, in our backpack, find a nice log to sit on, and enjoy some lunch, um, and then continue our walk and get back in the afternoon. Um, at some point, even out here, we try and do some uh, resistance exercises in, in addition to those aerobic exercises. And then um, try and have a, a a good a good dinner. Actually, what we prefer to do is have our larger meal at noontime. But out here, we're, we're taking a hike. We don't usually do it that way. Uh, but back home, we try and have our larger meal at noontime. Let that digest well, so that uh, and, and then have a lighter meal at dinner. Um, we're really pretty fixated on the idea that. Our plate should be about two-thirds vegetables and only one-third protein, whatever that might be. Uh, we certainly are not uh, anti-meat. We eat meat, we eat, but we try and eat a lot of fish and um, uh, limit our, our other carbohydrates and limit where we can the sugars. Uh, but I did mention to you that, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human like everybody else, and, you know, I'll, I enjoy a potato chip. <laughs> I enjoy a cookie. Um and then uh, I think it's becoming more and more clear that it's important for us not to eat after we have our last meal of the day uh, for two or three hours before we go to bed, kind of let things get digested a bit and settle down. And then it's important, um, I think there's more information about this coming out, that we ought to um, um, not eat after that dinner meal, supper meal, and sell breakfast at all. And there's no more snacks. And that ought to be 12 to 15 hours in between. Some people want to call that fasting. Of course, the term breakfast means we're breaking our fast from overnight. But maybe another way to call it is just time-restricted eating. Keep our, keep our eating um, 
between breakfast and supper to um, um, 12 hours or less. You know, I read in the paper not too long ago a, a concept of from in Japan called forest bathing. And um, forest bathing is just the idea of being outside, being outside in nature and just enjoying it. Um, and whether you're in the city in a little bit of a park or even just walking down the street in these, in these trees along the side of the street, or being out in the woods like we are right now, just that idea of being inside of nature is, I think, um, uh, not only physically healthy, but spiritually healthy as well. What would you say is is the future of healthcare? I mean, how do we solve this problem that, that we talked about in healthcare? What is, it, what is healthcare's responsibility? What is the primary care provider's responsibility when it comes to improving uh, basically healthcare trends? So to answer that, I need to back up for a second. I told, I mentioned before about these short visits. I think that short visit has to go. And of course, that means that the, the, the reimbursement system has to change. So just to take a second on that, maybe three or four seconds, um, I believe strongly that primary care physicians, not necessarily specialists, but primary care physicians probably should just disavow using insurance. And we should all be comfortable with that, that we're going to pay the primary care physician um, in cash, if you will, um, just as you pay other professionals, whether that's healthcare professionals or your architect, your, your plumber or whatever. Um, generally, primary care isn't that expensive. And, uh, and it didn't used to be covered by insurance, but it's kind of morphed into being that. As soon as it got covered by insurance, we had the problem we just talked about. So, get away from it. Sometimes it's called direct primary care. Where the idea is that if I come see you, I pay you. Uh, or maybe another way to do it is uh, I pay you for a whole year or do it on a monthly basis. And then I, in addition to uh, um, you seeing me on short notice and having a long enough uh, conversation, uh, visit time, you also give me your cell phone number and I can call you in the afternoon, nights, weekends. Uh, my wife and I both go to different physicians who follow that approach, and it's been terrific. Uh, we get over an hour for our annual exam. Um, we did have to call one time uh, when my wife fell and, and, and had a serious injury, and, and the doctor was right there, told us just what to do. Um, this last uh, spring, I, I almost hate to admit this, but we both developed influenza, uh, despite the fact we both had had the uh, vaccine. And despite the fact that I give talks at our retirement community about how to avoid the influenza. Anyway, we both woke up with it at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we waited till 7, and then we called our individual docs, and we had the, uh, the drug, the Tamiflu, um, within a few hours, um, and made all the difference. And we didn't have to try and go through somebody's uh, clerk or, or receptionist or anything. Anyway, so the approach there is um, let's pay for primary care out of pocket instead of with insurance and therefore get much better care. And and so that's step one. So the, then the, the primary care physician has the time to spend with you and can actually give the advice that you need regarding all these basics that you and I have just been talking about, you know, around exercise, around uh, nutrition and so on. Now, then the next thing, of course, is uh, people will say, well, yeah, but uh, docs aren't taught anything about nutrition in medical school. And that's true. <laughs> it, it, it really, we don't learn very much. Um, but that's, that's, that's an excuse. That's not a reason that we can't do it. 
Um, we, we, we certainly can do it. So that's to me is one of the big changes that needs to occur. It is occurring. Um, there are quite a few thousand primary care physicians now who follow this approach. And I can tell you from doing a lot of studies on it, that both the doctors are a lot healthier. They're not burned out like they were. And the patients are much, 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 much more satisfied with their care. And it turns out the costs come down. Costs come down because um, there's many fewer tests being done, many fewer x-rays being done, and many fewer referrals to specialists. So that just the total cost of healthcare comes down and the general health of people goes up. So that's, that's, that's my number one major prescription. As I told you before, I'm in the Duke Integrative Health uh, Leadership Program, and one of the things we're looking at is the research on serving from an integrative perspective, but also underserved areas or underprivileged areas or un, un, uninsured areas. And to think that you can provide an array of services, it could be yoga, it could be stretches, it could be nutrition counseling, uh, diet, exercise to people kind of on, like you said, kind of on a primary care basis without doing all the expensive tests, they're, what they're seeing is actually it's pretty cost-effective and lowers the cost of healthcare. And it, it validates what you said in kind of taking all these steps that we used to think of as ancillary and extra, right? If you have the money, go pay for those th- yeah. extra things to do. But now we're seeing it actually helps educate and reduces overall healthcare costs, which is amazing. I, I find it just fascinating. Well, it's true. It really is fascinating, but it's, but it, and that's why you called it integrative healthcare. And I think that's exactly what has to be done. Um, and that's something, again, that most uh, primary care physicians have not been trained in, although um, it's becoming more and more in medical school that they're being taught about, not taught, not, not taught how to, but at least being taught about things like acupuncture uh, like the importance of massage therapy, you mentioned yoga, tai chi, all these other ways to help us reduce stress, to to give us better exercise. Um, they're, they're really valuable. And more and more, there are good, solid scientific studies that show that they work. And you know this better than I do, but there are studies around uh, using acupuncture for lower back pain, for uh, for knee arthritis, um, the, the double-blind studies of, of that with, with, with uh, osteoarthritis of the knee showed that people who got the real acupuncture um, ended up using less pain medicines, could have had a better range of motion with their joint uh, than those who got the sham acupuncture. So there's, you know, these, these things that have been around for thousands of years have a lot of value. Meditation, um, it's kind of... I remember thinking for years that that was sort of a um, yeah, something that came out of out of the east somewhere. Um, sounded interesting, but you know, not not for the mainstream. I'm absolutely convinced that meditation is incredibly valuable, and I think the scientific studies show it now. Now, do you take any supplements? I do. Uh, now, how well they're tested uh, or. or, or, or I've always been a believer that if we eat well, we shouldn't need a lot of supplements. I'm changing my mind about that. Anyway, what I take is a, is a good quality multivitamin. I take vitamin D because I've had my, my vitamin D blood level checked and it wasn't 
adequate. So I take vitamin D for that. And I think most of us, well, you're in California where there's a lot of sunshine, but on the East Coast where I am, we have a lot of rainy days and, and dreary days, so we don't get that much sun. Um, so we, we, we need the vitamin D for most of us. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's important to... Um, uh, I have an idea that we all need probably more antioxidants, uh, vitamins A, C, D, E, um, than, than, than we're getting. And, um, and maybe we need a supplement for that. Eat our veggies. If we really do get a lot of dark green, dark green leafies in, if we get a good variety of vegetables that have multiple colors every day, um, uh, maybe we don't need the supplements. Uh, but others would say, and I'm not going to disagree with them, that the supplement's not a bad idea. But I'm, I'm really coming around to the idea that even if we eat very well, we may not be getting everything we need. And, or at least we could, we could, uh, we could do better if we took some supplements. So I mentioned the ones I take, um, and, and, and that's not that many. Um, I think maybe the, the, the number one thing is just a good multivite. And I think almost for, for most of us, vitamin D is important. And then beyond that, I'm not so certain. Now, there are others, though, that would say, and I wouldn't disagree, that curcumin, which is the active ingredient in turmeric, the spiced turmeric, is a wonderful antioxidant and probably uh, stronger than most and very effective. And I know some very um, good physicians who will say they always have their curcumin every day. So that's um, that may be one. By the way, just since I mentioned that, almost all the chronic diseases we develop, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, um, any thyroid diseases and so on, they're almost always based on some level of low-grade chronic inflammation that goes on for years and years and years. And so food, uh, but also supplements that can reduce that chronic inflammation can be extremely valuable. I want to mention you've got a you've got a couple books out. In fact, one just came out. Let's talk a little bit about that one. It's on longevity, right? It is. It's called Longevity Decoded: The Seven Keys to Healthy Aging. And to some degree, we've talked about quite a bit of it. And then, if you had to sum up essentially, you know, everything that we've talked about, and your kind of your mantra, how would you? What would you say to the listeners and kind of giving them as a final word? Well, I would say. Pay attention to those seven keys. I'm just going to rattle them off quickly, but then I'll, I'll sum it up. It's, it's, it's how we, what we eat, so our diet. It's how we exercise. We need our aerobics. We need our resistance exercise. It's how we deal with our stress. We all have chronic stress. We've got to deal with that. And that can be yoga, meditation, just exercise again. Um, We've got to have more sleep. Most Americans don't get adequate sleep, so... Uh, dealing with our sleep issues are important. Of course, no tobacco, zero. And then we need some intellectual stimulation. Uh, our brain depends on us. Um, um, you know, the, it's the old use it or lose it concept. And then there's social engagement. And you just mentioned it earlier about just walking with your wife uh, out, out on the street or wherever. Uh, that type of social engagement is very important for our brain. So those seven are really key. And so to sum it up, I would say each of us has the power, almost 
as by analogy, think of a light switch going up and down. Each of us has the power to make a huge difference in our life. If we follow those seven keys I just mentioned, don't be perfect about it, but you know, do a pretty good job. We can actually slow the aging process, slow the aging process substantially. And the earlier in life you start doing it, the more it pays off. It's like, um, it's like if we save money for retirement, beginning at an early age, and then we invested it, it grows and grows and grows. It, it, it compounds. It's the same concept with these seven keys. If we follow them starting at an early age, then they will really benefit us as we get older. And so what's going to happen is we're going to live longer because the aging process has slowed down and uh, we're going to develop many fewer of these chronic illnesses the heart disease, the Alzheimer's disease, the cancers, and so on, um, that plague us as we get older. So that would be my message. We each have that, we each have that power, that, that switch. Let's turn it on. Doc, I really appreciate your time. And again, your dedication of your entire life and helping really move forward medicine, and you're still doing it. I commend you for that. And we've got a lot to learn. And I really appreciate all the wisdom you shared with us on the show today. Well, you're very welcome. I appreciate the chance to do so. All right. Oh, and really quick, if people want to f- connect with you or find out or read more about, where can they either get your book or or find out more about you? So I guess the easiest thing to do is go to uh, Amazon and uh, type in their search field, Longevity Decoded, The Seven Keys to Healthy Aging. And uh, I think that'd be number one thing to do. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time, Steve. I really appreciate it and uh, wish you the best. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Heal Better Fast podcast at www.healbetterfast.com. 